Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Week in Politics here on the Byline Times podcast. Our guest today, Amelia Womack, former deputy leader of the Green Party, fresh back from COP27 in Egypt, and Sam Bright, the Byline Times investigations editor and author of Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital. Welcome both. And uh, Amelia, there were fanfares and trumpets to greet the launch of COP27. How would you sum up the results? I think that the commitment to a loss and damage fund was a huge win. The whole event was a roller coaster of emotions. Getting loss and damage on the agenda to begin with was hard fought for and won. But the reality is that although we've got a commitment for that fund, we are committing to that loss and damage happening. That's agricultural land turning into desert. That's island nations disappearing. And with no pathway to decarbonisation, even if the higher emitting countries are paying for that loss and damage, the damage that is being caused is irreversible. The loss of species, the loss of culture. And it's frustrating to have seen this result come out that's so short-sighted and really doesn't meet the demands of the climate emergency. For people who don't understand what the loss and damage fund is, just explain a little bit more, please. So the loss and damage fund effectively is a payment for countries that are experiencing the worst effects of climate change when they did the least to cause them. We just need to look to Pakistan, where a third of the country has been underwater, where they currently have an agricultural deficit as a result of the floods that cascaded through their lands and now mean that not only did they lose crops because of the floods, crops, housing, lives because of the floods, but they now can't rebuild because there's still flood water settled there. This would mean that they would be the economic impacts that the country had, that the higher emitting nations would pay for the effects of climate change. But the problem with this fund is it's very loosely thought out. There is currently no real definition about what loss and damage is. The commitments aren't really there. It's a stepping stone. There's clearly still a lot of work to be done. As I said, there's not even a a definition about what loss and damage would be, who would be eligible for those payments. And so at the moment, it's words on a piece of paper, as these things often are when you have big international negotiations. But we do have a lot more work to be done to ensure that that's outlined effectively. But I would just highlight as well that so the UK alone is millions of pounds short of even putting forward funds for a September deadline for an adaptation fund for developing nations to ensure that they're able to adapt to the climate emergency. So faith that this money is going to arrive is uh, going to be one of those we'll believe it when we see it things. And as you say, for environmental campaigners, the loss and damage fund was the big win. But when we're looking at the reality of the climate emergency, I know that Alok Sharma, who was the Conservative minister who led The UK at the COP26 conference in Glasgow is extremely disappointed. He says we need to see emissions peaking before 2025. And to quote his phrase, not in this text, not in the text of the COP27 Mm -hmm. meeting. Clear follow through on the phase down of coal, not in this text. So we're not talking about some radical green campaigner here. We're talking about a senior former minister, clearly angry at the failure of COP27 to deliver more. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, those battles that we did see playing out at COP 
the phase down of all fossil fuels being pushed by India and uh, supported by other countries, but really led by India. There was no commitment to that. This was on a backdrop of the dash for gas in Africa. So there were gas deals being done during COP27. There were people almost trying to claim the narrative about the dash for gas being about development of Africa versus a lot of the campaigners that I met who live in these communities that have been destroyed by the fossil fuel industry saying this isn't development. I live in a country that's had gas for decades and people are dying because of floods, again, lack of agricultural land, drought, because of the air that we breathe and the water that we drink being polluted. And I felt that that was a real backdrop of of the conversations that were being had. Let's not forget that there were over 600 delegates from the fossil fuel industries that had the opportunity to rub shoulders with world leaders at this event. We saw a pipeline being committed to between the governments of Germany and Senegal while COP was happening, where the people in Senegal saying that this will destroy their fishing communities, which is the primary livelihood of people in that country. I think that the phasing out of all fossil fuels would have been really important at this stage. It would have included oil and gas, so not just coal, but it would have included oil and gas and would have been a step towards reclaiming a narrative about what genuine emissions reduction is. How would you sum up your feelings then coming away from COP27? You know, I saw a lot of climate action, actually. I saw a lot of people taking control and speaking out. And it was really from the the people from the civil society delegates that were campaigning in their communities. A woman from Senegal who was coming to ask for renewable energy in her community. A lot of people from different African countries talking about renewables, actually. The person from Brazil who wanted to expose what climate and ecological destruction meant for his community in the Amazon. There was genuine, real action happening. It just wasn't happening in the negotiation rooms. And Sam, I wouldn't describe Rishi Sunak necessarily as a climate sceptic, but he's not keen on doing all the things that might be necessary to combat the climate emergency. For example, the ban on onshore wind farms. This has been framed in the UK now as a political row because Boris Johnson and Liz Truss have both joined a a Tory backbench rebellion. It is very difficult to square a commitment to combating climate change with a ban on onshore wind farms, but that's what Rishi Sunak has implemented. I know it's balmy, and this has been his policy for a while. It was his policy during the Conservative leadership contest during the summer, and it was a real head-scratcher. I mean, there is a degree of irony here, Adrian, that Liz Truss has joined the rebellion considering that she didn't want solar panels to be put on farmland. You know, if anybody's a climate sceptic in the Conservative Party, Liz Truss is certainly on that wing of things. But yes, I mean, the polling suggests that onshore wind is widely popular, you know, in the region of 70%, if not more of the population, support more onshore wind. And yet Sunak's taken a nimbiest approach to this, as in not in my backyard, which sums up quite a lot of what the Conservative Party has been caught up in recently, particularly a rebellion over the amount of homes that are being built in this country. It seems as though in terms of taking the big infrastructure steps that will solve big problems that are facing British society, they seem to want to avoid the fight currently at this stage in their in their political life cycle. Johnson has cited his levelling up 
agenda as being a, an argument in favour of onshore wind farms. We actually saw precious little in terms of hard evidence of his levelling up agenda in practice when he was prime minister. But actually, this is one area where places outside of London and the southeast might potentially benefit financially and become more self-sustaining. I guess the the sceptical argument would be that these facilities would be erected on, you know, the glorious countryside of, of Yorkshire, which I can confirm is glorious to all listeners. And then the power would be harnessed for perhaps somewhere else and there wouldn't be, and maybe the consultancies of London would be commissioned to do the design and the architecture and the building, etc. But I think as long as all of that engineering work, all of that infrastructure development is contained within the local community, if there are, if there are provisions for local firms to get the contracts and for the energy to potentially in some way benefit local communities in one way or another, then yeah, you can certainly see how how it would benefit the levelling up agenda. And as long as there's sort of sensible, prompt public consultation on where these wind farms are placed, you can't see too much problem with it, uh, particularly because they're not not particularly unattractive. I mean, my grandma lives beneath an old power station near Widnes, and that's certainly a blight on the landscape. And in no way can you compare onshore wind to something like that, which was the power generation of previous generations. Yeah, and let's be clear, Bob, Johnson and Truss are supporting the idea of onshore wind farms where there is local consent. Over and above climate change, there's also now a, a geopolitical necessity because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine for Britain to become more self-sustaining in terms of energy production. So it is difficult other than the NIMBY argument to understand why people would oppose it. Yeah, I'm quite baffled. And especially considering, if you you look at Rishi Sunak's background, I mean, he's often been portrayed as this sort of slick Silicon Valley man, almost more akin to a tech entrepreneur than a a politician, cut in in the cloth of Elon Musk, etc., and yet where technological innovation is concerned in terms of climate change, he has been the sort of the doddery old 60-year-old parliamentarian who's opposed to any sort of development that it didn't come out of the Stone Ages. So it's quite difficult to square that with his, with his personal background. Yeah, I think that this is a legacy of uh, basically the Cameron years when we saw the rise of UKIP who were campaigning against onshore wind from a NIMBY perspective. And we saw onshore wind highly politicised at that point where it wasn't about climate change. It wasn't, it wasn't even about the communities that they were in. It was really about the politics and the argument. But it played out in a number of different ways. If you look at the devolution deal that we got in Wales, the devolution deal for Wales is quite different to that in Scotland, whereas Scotland's devolution is they've got power over everything except things like military. With Wales, it's more piecemeal. We got given energy except onshore wind over a certain amount. And this was because it really was part of this time where onshore wind was so highly politicised. It's interesting to now see it play out in another political way about it being the internal politics of the Conservative Party. And again, it doesn't seem to be about the communities. Like Lots of communities do want renewable energy. We've seen community renewables develop over time. Obviously, the efficiency, the way that they grow 
will depend on other things like the feed-in tariff and things that encourage people to have that community renewables or renewables in their area that aren't just from the big multinationals. But there's not a genuine commitment to what the future of renewables looks like. It just seems to be, again, playing politics. And I do find it so fascinating that it's onshore wind again that seems to be the, the crux of the issue. And as Sam says, you could use political means to encourage buy-in from local communities, couldn't you? You could ensure that a certain percentage of the work, whether that's the consultancy work, whether that's the installation work, is carried out by local firms. Now that we're no longer in the European Union, one of the potential Brexit dividends is that you wouldn't have to put the work out to competition with companies outside of the UK. So you could ensure buy-in. You could talk about a certain percentage, maybe all of the energy produced being used within a local area to encourage the support for onshore wind farms. Absolutely. And I understand that um, in some countries that the communities that will have the wind farms in their view then get cheaper electricity. And, uh, you know, that kind of uh, financial gain that you get as a result of having onshore wind in your area is something that do communities do really appreciate. I also just think at this time where, you know, we have been dependent on geopolitics to set a fossil fuel price for decades now. And we are always going to be a victim of geopolitics as we are continuing to our, our addiction to fossil fuels and to have genuine energy sovereignty, really, genuine energy that means that we are powering our communities in an effective way from the UK that me- means that we're less dependent on on foreign energy. This is such an important time to be having that conversation, yet I don't feel like we're really, we're, again, it feels like this argument's happening in isolation rather than it being an understanding of the wider implication of long-term renewables. I love your use of the word sovereign there. I find it fascinating, Sam, that having gone through the whole EU referendum process, having gone through Brexit in the name of sovereignty, the idea of being a sovereign power in terms of energy production is off the agenda. Solar, onshore wind, they're not things that are at the front and centre of our political discourse. Yet at a time of rising energy prices, which affect everyone, but the wealthiest, you'd think that should be something that all parties, regardless of ideology, could be getting behind? Yeah, well, this is the thing, and this is the fascinating aspect of Brexit, in that there's a real conflict between the sovereignty, the sort of domestic sovereignty argument, the protectionist argument of the likes that we saw in America under Trump, actually, saying that we should erect barriers where we can protect domestic industries and domestic markets. You know, and I think energy would fit into that. And in, not in a way that's backwards or, you know, retrograde. This is actually encouraging a very progressive form of energy and economic development. Then on the other hand, you've got the likes of Liz Truss, who actually think that the free market is sovereign above all else. And that actually any attempt by the government to try and intervene in the market is a form of communism. And so effectively, you shouldn't attempt it. And as a result, you know, you get left to the wolves effectively when Britain as a very small market is forced to compete, you know, with the world, whether that's in trade, and we've seen that Britain's trade is declining rapidly 
compared to previous decades, or whether that's in energy, where we're forced to, to be reliant on Russian oil and gas. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to The Week in Politics here on the Byline Times podcast. Just a reminder that we are funded by subscriptions to The Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer. There's no big corporation behind us. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, independent journalism. So please find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions cost from as little as £3 a month. So if you can, please support us. Head over to bylinetimes.com and take out a subscription. You'll also find at bylinetimes.com some fantastic articles written over many months now by Sam into the PPE scandal. And Sam, we thought perhaps that we might have heard the last of that, certainly for a while, but the whole PPE scandal story has been reignited again by the question surrounding Michelle Moan, who is a peer, no less. She's batted off questions previously about her involvement in a potential PPE scandal after a company with which she had been associated was put on the VIP fast track for providing PPE to the government. Yeah, so this Michelle Moan case is sort of... So the, the, the PPE scandal sort of crystallised now into this one story. As you and I know, it's got many tentacles, but essentially the new detail that's emerged in recent days is that an offshore company whose beneficiaries are Michelle Moan and her children received £29 million as a result of two PP deals that it signed with the government during the pandemic that were worth a total of £220 million. So essentially, this, as you say, this member of the House of Lords who lobbied senior ministers for this firm to be placed on the VIP list has now seemingly benefited to the tune of tens of millions of pounds from the contracts that were signed. And we should say that Lady Moan, as she now is, has consistently denied any role or function in the company called PPE MedPro. And her lawyers have previously said she is not connected to PPO MedPro in any capacity. What this story allows us to do, Sam, is remind listeners that the National Audit Office talked about the complete failure of proper cost control, the failure of due diligence when it came to handing out these contracts. Yeah, exactly. You know, this isn't just tired and tireless investigators looking into this. This is the, you know, like you say, the National Audit Office, which is the government's spend official spending watchdog that has produced multiple reports now stating the fact that a lot of these contracts awarded to VIPs were awarded, as you say, before proper due diligence processes were put in place. In fact, in January this year, the High Court determined that using the VIP lane, the government's use of the VIP lane, was unlawful because it prejudiced certain suppliers ahead of others. And now the government itself, after all this, after £13 billion worth of PPE spending, it has actually written off £8.7 billion worth of that spending. So that's on equipment that either can't be used or it was purchased at a really highly inflated rate. Equipment as well that's going to have to be incinerated. So these are plastics that are going to have to incinerate because the PPE has passed its expiry date and it can no longer be used. 
So this is in the context of a cost of living crisis in particular. These are vast sums of money that the government's wasted on a procurement process that ultimately funneled a lot of money towards Conservative Party donors and supporters as well. Yeah, we have done a specific podcast about that, and I would encourage people to go back and listen to previous episodes and to check out your articles as well at bylinetimes.com. For people who don't know, the VIP lane was instituted at the start of the pandemic so that we could obtain PPE, but people who had contact with ministers, people who had contact with MPs, people who had contact with senior civil servants were allowed as it were, priority access to be considered as a provider by the government, and in many cases were successful. Amelia, there is an argument here that we hadn't had a pandemic like this for decades, that we needed to get hold of this PPE quickly at a time when there was a a great global demand for it, so that people like Sam and perhaps me are being wise after the event. Interestingly, I have done a lot of work on flooding, which means that I spent a lot of time looking at the risk register for the government. A global pandemic was always written into the risk register that meant that we should have had PPE in emergency supply in preparation for a global pandemic. Now, actually, I would say that that risk register was outdated. It was managing the risk for flu. So effectively, we'd been waiting for a flu pandemic. And in the risk register, as you can imagine, it's got the likelihood of things happening. So it had all, it has all kinds of things, terror attacks, flooding, global pandemic. A global pandemic was as likely in this risk register as disruptive snow. That's how they were ex- recent, how soon that they were expecting this to happen. So the fact that they weren't prepared means that they weren't even listening to their own reports. Now, that risk register wasn't updated for SARS. After SARS had happened, then we should have been more aware of the possibility of another pandemic, the risk of a pandemic like that happening rather than it just being flu. And I'd say that when I saw Boris Johnson first talking about what our process was going to be, yes, I could see the step-by-step process in that risk register of the number of weeks we were going to be locked down, how long it would take to have a vaccine. It wasn't updated for SARS. And so I'd actually say that the government failed itself. We've got these documents, we do this work, yet they they weren't prepared for it. Then you've got this fast track that benefits people within the government during a time where people are losing friends and family and are experiencing the devastating consequences of a global pandemic. It feels like, once again, people saw the pandemic as an opportunity for themselves while these horrendous things were happening. You know, I really do think that the country deserves a general election, not the different PPE contracts, the parties in Downing Street. We've been through so much since that last 2019 general election. I think that the country's really reflected on what the the future should look like. And that's before we've had the chaos of multiple prime ministers. So I really think the government is just showing that it's failing time and time again. And the country really does deserve another chance to say what it thinks about what our future is. Yeah, the National Risk Register, it's an official government document, provides an updated assessment of the likelihood and potential impact of a range of different malicious and non-malicious national security risks. There, I think in fairness, we ought to say that the failure to provide PPE predates Boris Johnson's government, doesn't it? I mean, it predates the pandemic. I think the failure goes back at least 
to David Cameron's government. Yeah, it just uh, I just feel like it shows that there's not just one bad apple in that cart, but it's just been failure after failure after failure. And um, yeah, it does it, it does predate Boris Johnson, of course, but at the same time, I just see that that was written on the wall that a global pandemic was likely to hit the world, to impact the UK, and that we simply were not prepared for it. I want to talk about migration as well, Amelia, and I think with the climate emergency upon us, we're likely to see much greater global migration than we already have. It was the lead news item in many news bulletins on radio and television that the UK's net immigration last year was half a million people. Once again, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, promised that she would get to grips with migration. This seems to happen year in, year out, decade in, decade out. People concerned about migration, politicians promising to take action, but migration continuing to increase, not least because we sometimes offer a haven for people fleeing hideous regimes or wars, as in Ukraine, but also because employers need migrant workers and because our universities need students to come here and study and pay the expensive fees. So we don't really have an honest discussion about migration, it seems to me, in this country. I absolutely agree. And it's, uh, you know, the nurses in the NHS that, again, they're looking after us in our hour of need during the COVID pandemic. And then, I mean, we've seen a, a failure of this conversation around Brexit. It's been a, a constant blight, I feel like, on the UK's politics. But I agree that we're just not having an honest conversation about what migration brings to the UK. And the UK's role in being a, a haven, but also the UK's role as a, a country that has many multinational corporations that is impacting other places around the world as well. But um, I mean, you just look at the climate emergency, taking responsibility for people's loss of land, taking um, res- responsibility for our role in potentially island nations disappearing will be there will be an impact on on migration. And it's not about the people who are migrating. It's about the responsibility that we have to ensure that those people are protected. But I'd also say that the demonization of migrants, it's the problem with the press and media in many instances, the toxicity that we had during the the EU referendum that meant that we weren't dealing with the, the genuine problems that people had, but giving them a scapegoat of migration. One of my favourite conversations to have during the EU referendum and the following general elections was talking to people who were voting UKIP. Now, I've always had a thing where I'm not against UKIP. I'm against UKIP leaders, but I'm not always against UKIP voters because often they've been given a solution to their problems that is the silver bullet. And um, when people say, oh, you know, I'm worried about migration, when you ask the question, what specifically are you worried about? Then they'll talk about jobs and they'll talk about housing and they'll talk about the NHS. And so I think that this conversation that we have around migration that gives a way out for the government to genuinely take responsibility for those things as well, for the problems that we do have in the UK. Because instead of building more houses, instead of increasing the the minimum wage, instead of ensuring that our NHS has the funding that it deserves and the staffing that it needs, we're blaming migration for those problems rather than the people who should be blamed for them. And Sam, if people do come into this country in significant numbers, it will have an impact on the NHS. It will have an impact on your 
local GP surgery or your local hospital or your kid's local school, for example, as well as bringing potential benefits with it. But it seems as though we can't have kind of a neutral, objective discussion about the measures that we need to take in order to expand those services without it being caught up in a sometimes toxic discussion and a sometimes racist discussion about migration. Mm. Yeah, I think Amelia is spot on with the uh, the media's role in all of this. I think that the Conservative Party has created a rod for its own back, right, especially the vote leave Conservatives in the fact that they've portrayed, in order to sway enough of the electorate to vote for Brexit, they had to run a really hard campaign against immigration during the austerity years. And so now, now that they're actually in power and they won that referendum, they won the subsequent general elections, the public has sort of assimilated that narrative, that all immigration is bad and there's no nuance to the debate. There's not been any distinguishing between the Ukrainian asylum seekers who've come over, the students from other countries who weren't able to come to the UK to study and contribute and research and work during the COVID pandemic. It's just written up, unfortunately, by the tabloids as immigration high, that is bad, pressure on public services, problem for the Conservative Party. The party that's created that perception, or at least contributed to it among the general population, it's going to find it a really tough task to worm itself out of that bind. And Amelia, we were the world's first industrialised nation. We're therefore responsible for initiating the significant amounts of carbon that have gone into the air. We have banks based in the UK that were often founded on and grew from the profits of slavery and which are still investing in fossil fuels. If people have to flee as a result of climate change, many people will say, well, this is partly at least of our own doing and we have to accept our share of responsibility. Absolutely. But I would also just want to, I think that there's a really important narrative that we should be supporting that isn't just about migration for those people fleeing and needing to move from their country. But, you know, the the Windrush generation that came over and really built so much of the UK, again, those nurses who have been in the NHS and tirelessly work in some of the toughest conditions. These are people who are doing incredible things and have worked to create Great Britain as it is at the moment. And I think that there is a real narrative about how migration has given us strength and still does give us strength. And it's those people who do choose to come and live here that that do that for us. And I think it's really important in terms of migration that we do think of it in terms of how it makes our country what it is, rather than it being a, a narrative about who's a victim in different situations. Not that we should really ignore our role in that at all, but I just uh, think it's important that we have that strength in our own narratives. Here, here. Thank you very much indeed. That's Amelia Womack, former deputy leader of the Green Party. Thanks also to Sam Bright, investigations editor of the Byline Times and author of Fortress London. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Before we go, I just want to let you know a bit of good news. You can get more fantastic Byline content coming soon. The Byline supplement will be launching on Substack. So do follow our socials for more information about that. But the Byline supplement on Substack coming soon. There'll be more information 
on our social media outlets. Before we go as well, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's a brilliant monthly newspaper in its own right. But if you take out a subscription, you're also helping to keep us on the airwaves as well. So head over to bylinetimes.com if you can and take out a subscription if you've already done so. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks, as always, to the many people who promote our work via social media. We don't have a marketing budget, so we're extremely grateful to all of you who spread the good word via Twitter, Facebook and so on. Thanks very much indeed. This has been The Week in Politics. We'll see you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.